Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Fed fallout, U.S. stocks stabilize after Friday's fumble. Asian stocks stumble. Prime pinch, Amazon sellers say bottlenecks could mean fewer bargains. And Tokyo turnout, spectators will be allowed at the Olympic Games. It's Monday, let's make a move. A warm welcome once again to all our first movers around the world. Great to be back with you this Monday. It is actually the first trading day of the summer and perfect weather to catch some rays with the CEO of First Solar, the US-based alternative energy giant, hoping to build the largest solar panel manufacturing plant outside of China. A ray of hope, too, for low- and middle-income nations coming up as well. We've got the vaccine update from the CEO of Novavax. And here comes the sun on Wall Street as well. U.S. stocks heating up after Friday's sell-off and the worst week, in fact, for the Dow all year. That's the global picture. We had a, let's call it a teeny taper tantrum as investors processed last week's shift in Federal Reserve policy. The U.S. Central Bank acknowledging stronger growth and inflationary pressures and pulling forward the discussion on reduced support and future rate rises. It was never going to be a good time to have that conversation. Europe now turning higher. A volatile session, as I mentioned already, in Asia with the Nikkei falling some 4% before recovering slightly. As you can see, down some 3.3%. We're at a policy inflection point, and that takes time to process and often means turbulence. And that's what we're seeing. We're going to have Federal Reserve members out in force this week, too, to help massage the message. Fed Chair Jay Powell will testify before Congress tomorrow, so he'll be watched closely. Solar flares in the meantime in the deal-making space, too. A SPAC, or Special Purpose Acquisition Company, controlled by investor Bill Ackman, sealed a deal to buy 10% of Universal Music from Vivendi, valuing the music supernova at some $40 billion. Music catalogues, of course, have been red-hot investments so far this year. So here's hoping for a sunkissed trading day overall. Let's get to the drivers. Paula Monica joins me now. Paul, great to have you with us. Let's talk about the Fed. As I mentioned there, oh, oh, fantastic. Look at that. Hello, oh. my David Caruso I, from CNN. I, I have mine ready to good work, Paul. <laughs> there was never, sunglasses or not, there was never going to be a good time to have a conversation about acknowledging stronger growth, about potentially pulling back on some of the policy support, throwing shade on investors in the past week or so, Paul, took us through it. Are yes, we over? Well, yeah. Obviously, the big issue, I think, right now, the problem for the market is that the economy has roared back from the depths of the COVID crisis last year. As a result, you are now going to have some Federal Reserve members, maybe not Jay Powell just yet, but James Bullard, the St. Louis Fed president, He said in an interview on Friday on CNBC that he was the dot, one of the dots in the last Fed dot plot that was voting for a rate hike as early as next year, not 2023, but a 2022 rate hike. And he is a voting member next year. So I think the market took his uh, proclamation very seriously. And we had this massive sell off because all of a sudden investors are worried that maybe the Fed has to accelerate this return to normalcy. They taper more quickly, they raise rates more quickly, less talking and more action. 
It was quite fascinating, though, and I was watching from the sidelines briefly to see the pullback that we saw in the Dow. And yet we're still, what, one and a half percent away from record highs in the Nasdaq. If you're concerned about the Fed pulling back some of this support, if it means less strong growth going forward, then you have to buy growth. And that favours the tech stocks, which I did note in the past week. And admittedly, it's early days. But I think part of the problem here is that the Fed's out of practice in dealing with inflation because they've rarely hit their target in recent years. We've had 10 years plus of excessive, my, my word, perhaps not others, support for these markets. So we don't know what the digestion issues are going to be going forward as they start to look at pulling back policy, particularly in the face of such incredibly strong growth and confusing data. Yeah, you are not the only one, Julia, that has some concerns about the level of stimulus that we have gotten from a monetary uh, perspective from the Federal Reserve and other global central banks uh, you know, over the past uh, decade and then more specifically in response to COVID-19 last year. There are questions about just exactly how the economy will respond once the Fed finally starts to taper and then raise interest rates, because I think a lot of people, I'll say it, have gotten spoiled like petulant little children by having interest rates near zero for this extended period of time. And people don't want the party to stop. But, you know, you choose your metaphor. You've got to take your medicine or what have you uh, eventually. And no one likes it. But we can't have this sustained level of zero interest rates and extraordinary stimulus forever, particularly when the economy is improving, because if the Fed doesn't fight inflation, then we know how that turns out. It's called the 1970s and early 1980s. Yeah, we couldn't be in a better position to start pulling back that support and hopefully seeing wages rise a little bit and some greater gains in terms of equality happening behind the scenes too. It should be a good and opportunistic time to be able to do this. Just got to manage it well. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, prime yourselves for discount dismay, potentially. Amazon's yearly Prime Day shopping extravaganza began at midnight, but those hoping for steep post-pandemic deals may be disappointed. Claire Sebastian has been investigating. We're dealing with a few things here, Claire, of course. Uh, Supply chain challenges in terms of backlog in production due to the pandemic, uh, shortages of containers and shipping, and, of course, the obvious thing that we've just been discussing there, potential labour shortages as well. Not the most prime position for Amazon and Jeff Bezos's last prime day, of course, too, in, in the CEO role. Yeah, Julia, a couple of weeks till, till Jeff Bezos steps down as CEO. And this prime day, a sort of festival of discounts is happening at a time when retailers are really not in the mood to be doing discounts. It, it's hard to sort of overstate how unprecedented these times are uh, for these many, many retailers, small businesses who now sell on Amazon. 60% of Amazon sales come from third-party sellers, mostly small uh, and medium-sized businesses. I want to give you some stats. This is not just a survey of Amazon sellers, but the National Retail Federation sent a letter to the Biden administration uh, last week, and they said of of their members, 70% of respondents that they surveyed said they had to add two to three weeks to their supply chains. 85% of those surveyed say they are experiencing inventory shortages as a result of supply chain disruptions. I've spoken to companies who say that shipping containers are costing more than double uh, than they they did a year ago. So it's a really unprecedented times. And that's why I think this Prime Day is in sort of an extraordinarily uncharted waters. You know, we do expect, as Amazon says, that they're going to be two million uh, different deals, but you might see less steep cuts to prices. 
And things like electronics might be affected because of those uh, major shortages of semiconductors that we've been seeing. Nevertheless, Adobe does expect that 11 billion will be spent this year, more than the last Prime Day, which was only about eight months ago. Uh, But look for some sort of more muted deals out there this time. Yeah, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? And just for perspective, I think small and medium-sized businesses as a segment now accounts for more than half of Amazon's um, e-commerce sales, just to give people perspective on what it means when you're saying 85% of these people and respondents are saying they've got inventory issue. I mean, this is fascinating in terms of figures. What are Amazon themselves saying about this? And I guess the question is, do they benefit if some of the businesses that sell on their platform are struggling? Does Amazon's alternatives benefit as a result? I mean, I think Amazon is also being affected in some ways by these supply chain issues. No one is immune. Everyone uses shipping containers. But uh, Amazon has said, look, we continue to innovate and grow Prime Day to ensure our Prime members and selling partners uh, find incredible value. A lot of the messaging, though, that you're seeing around this Prime Day is around supporting these small businesses. They've launched a a promotion where Prime members can get sort of a $10 credit if they spend $10 on select small businesses uh, during a two-week window, which includes Prime Day. They're really sort of pushing the idea uh, of small businesses on the platform. And the cynic might say that this is good PR. Of course, they are facing an increasing amount of antitrust questions. There was just new legislation introduced in the House that could rein in uh, big tech. The the Washington, D.C. Attorney General is investigating Amazon for price fixing with its third-party sellers. So this is something they're really pushing this time. They did grow sales significantly in their third-party sellers in the last Prime Day last October. So presumably they're hoping to do the same again. But then again, a lot of that could be out of their control this time, Julia. Yeah, but you make a great point about the importance of promoting and helping small and medium-sized businesses, particularly given the uh, political climate here for Amazon. Um, Claire Sebastian, we shall see. Thank you for that report there. Okay, the speculation is now over. Perhaps Olympic organisers in Japan finally announcing that spectators will be allowed at venues next month. Selena Wang is live in Tokyo. Selena, great to have you with us at 50% capacity, I believe, for these sporting events. How does that compare in terms of the numbers that we're talking about here compared to previous Olympics? I guess I'm thinking safety implications and financial implications too. Well, Julia, normally millions of tickets are sold to spectators around the world before the pandemic, before Tokyo decided to ban overseas spectators. They were expecting more than 7 million tickets to be up for grabs. Now, domestically in Japan, they've sold about 4.5 million tickets. More than 800,000 have now been refunded. But because of the spectator caps, which, as you say, is about 50 percent spectator cap or maximum of 10,000, they now are trying to whittle that down through a lottery to about 2.7 million tickets. Now, we've talked about this before. These games are not going to give the same economic boost spending that Japan was hoping for. And in terms of revenue from ticket sales, they say they expect it to be less than half of what they had originally projected of about $820 million, Julia. Fantastic. And uh, what about potential adjustments as we head towards it, Selena? Because I said the speculation's over, but there's always going to be speculation until the Olympic Games begin that adjustments will have to be made depending on the situation at the time. Exactly. And the, they say that they reserve the right to potentially cancel 
all spectators, so it could still be a games with no spectators if the COVID situation turns worse, or that spectator cap could be further reduced. So speculation not entirely over. And the vaccination rate in Japan right now still just at about 7%, still lagging behind many developed countries. While they are trying to speed up that vaccination rate, with the prime minister pledging to get to about 1 million vaccinations a day, even at that rate, you would still have less than 20% of the Japanese population fully vaccinated by the time these games begin. Yeah, so there's going to be a lot of unvaccinated people wandering around as spectators here, even if the Olympic Village itself has herd immunity. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. In his first news conference today, as Iran's president-elect hardliner Ibrahim Razi called on the U.S. to return to the 2015 nuclear agreement and to lift all sanctions first imposed by former President Donald Trump. President Trump pulled out of the agreement in 2018. Iran and the U.S. are indirectly negotiating over how to re-implement the deal. Ethiopians are casting their votes for parliament this hour in the first real electoral test for Prime Minister Abe Ahmed. His party is considered the front-runner in a crowded field. The ballot is being held amid a boycott by the main opposition party, as well as ethnic violence and allegations of a political crackdown. CNN's Larry Madowo is in the capital for us. Larry, great to have you on. I believe this is the first multi-party election in some 16 years. Just explain for many reasons why this is so pivotal. Julia, that's correct. This is the first attempt at a truly free and fair multi-party election in Ethiopia. And there's a big asterisk here because there's a flawed process here. 20% of constituencies are not taking part because of insecurity or logistical challenges. They will have a chance to vote in September. But in the north, in Tigray, where there's already a civil war and claims of a genocide there, they cannot take part in this process as well. And some major opposition parties are boycotting the election. Some are in prison. And so Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, who needs the legitimacy of an election, is going to go through this process a little tainted because of all those other issues related to this election. However, there are many perfect but necessary steps to true democracy in Ethiopia. One of them is the chair of Ethiopia's Human Rights Commission, Daniel Bekele, and I've been speaking to him. Was, uh, was a necessary step uh, to, to have an elected government uh, in, uh, in a credible process. Uh, and we have a credible uh, elections uh, commission to to lead the process, and uh, there is a credible uh, political space uh, for competitive elections. Uh, so this was a necessary step uh, towards dialogue and towards long-term solutions for Ethiopia. The turnout has so far been decent, but then it's now started to rain, and there was a long queue going around the block. Some people have been here for hours. And some of them are dispersed, and this is something the Elections Board of Ethiopia worried about, that if it began to rain, some people would just give up and go home. And that appears to have happened. Some are sheltering back there, and some appears to just decided, you know what, it's not worth it. Maybe next election, Julia. Yeah, I was going to ask you exactly that, and we were having a few reception issues there as a result of the weather as well. Fingers crossed people come out and vote despite the weather. Larry, great to have you with us. Thank you. Larry Madowo there. All right, Hong Kong just announcing it's cutting its COVID-19 quarantine time by half for some incoming travellers. From the end of this month, people who are fully vaccinated and show positive antibodies against COVID-19 may only have to quarantine for seven days. Hong Kong has largely controlled the virus throughout the pandemic. 
Still to come here on First Move, the Novavax COVID-19 shot sells through trials its CEO on why the world needs vaccine variety. And grounded despite sky-high demand, American Airlines cancels scores of flights as it struggles to find workers. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The arsenal of highly effective COVID-19 vaccines could soon get another shot. The U.S. biotech firm Novavax is preparing to submit the results of its phase three trials in the U.S. and Mexico for peer review. It says its vaccine has an overall efficacy of more than 90 percent and 100 percent efficacy against moderate to severe COVID-19. It's also shown promise against different variants. Novavax has struck a deal with the Serum Institute of India to produce its vaccine. We're joined by the president and CEO of Novavax, Stanley Irk. Stan, fantastic to have you on the show once again. The news gets better and better. These efficacy rates are incredibly exciting. But I think what our viewers need to understand, and we can start there, is when you were trialling these in the United States in particular, the alpha variant was highly prevalent. This is the first identified variant in the UK. Talk us through efficacy against variants in particular. Yeah, so this was, uh, thank you very much for having me on, but uh, this was really important. Uh, we had done previously two efficacy trials, one in South Africa and one in, in the UK, and we and we got uh, um, very good results and very interesting results because in the timing of those two trials were when variants started uh, circulating in those two countries. So when we got to the U.S., uh, nobody knew quite what the what the uh, circulating variant would be, uh, so we went into that trial with uh, optimism that we could be effective against whatever we saw, and we were. We got so we saw 80, over 80 percent of the infections were due to uh, variants, and, and as you pointed out, the alpha variant was the most prominent, and against the variants, this 80 plus percent uh, group. We got 93% efficacy, which is it's 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 we're the only company that has the ability to show uh, efficacy against variants, and so that's really important uh, as we go forward. And, and um, uh, as you point out, we got 100% efficacy against uh, moderate and severe disease. We had no moderate or severe disease in the trial, and in addition, against the those who had the uh, the original Wuhan type. Uh, strain. We've got 100 percent efficacy. So we're happy with the results. I mean, I'm asking for the moon here, but I will ask for it. Obviously, a lot of the focus currently is on the Delta variant first identified in India. And of course, that's come much later than when you began your trials. Do you have any sense just from the data that you're seeing about its efficacy against that particular variant? Can you give us no, any, uh, any information? No, not much. Uh, as you yeah. point out, the Delta variant uh, is, was not prominent in the in the U.S. in our trial, so we don't know. Our expectation is, is that we will work against the Delta variant, and uh, we'll just have to find out. As you, I think, as you know, we have a we have a very strong collaboration with the Serum Institute of India, and which is the largest vaccine uh, company in the world by volume. They they make uh, roughly a billion and a half doses of vaccine every year, and two thirds of the world's kids get their vaccine their vaccines. Uh, and so in with that partnership, we will be running trials in uh, in India. And so we'll be able to get some determination of, of how our vaccine works there. 
Yeah, I mean, I've heard them say in recent days that they're hoping to have this vaccine supply by September of this year, which would be incredible news. And I've also seen you say that you're hoping that this vaccine will be able to be used in lower and middle income nations at a critical moment in time. Stan, this would be phenomenal. Thank you. It it is a critical time. And and, uh, we've been working with the Serum Institute so that we can get volumes in, in excess of two billion doses per year. Uh, on on a uh, full uh, manufacturing rate next year, and we we uh, did a partnership with Covax, uh, where we where we promised that we to supply 1.1 billion doses, and, and virtually all of those doses will go in low and middle income countries. So when on our approval, and we've got we've got regulatory filings that will go in next quarter, in I think seven or eight different uh, uh, jurisdictions around the world. And with approval, I think the, the most of the doses will go into low and middle income countries. That's, that's I think, really needed these days. Oh, and then some. What can you tell me as well about that's booster shots? Because I know you're doing trials on what a third vaccine dose represents in terms of the body's production of antibodies. Can you give us a sense of, of early days once again, but, but what you're seeing there? Yeah, I can. So, so early days. So... A year ago, when we started this program, we vaccinated uh, non-human primates, baboons, uh, with our vaccine and showed uh, really high levels of of antibodies and neutralizing antibodies uh, with two doses of our vaccine. So now we go forward, march forward a year later, and we got those same animals uh, and and tested their antibody levels, which had declined, as they do with all vaccines, after six or 12 months. And so we saw with a third dose uh, very high antibody titers and very quick responses. Less than seven days, uh, we got we got great uh, responses. So as you point out, we're doing a trial in the UK, and it's a it's a, a couple trials actually, basically looking at our vaccines head to head, our vaccine head to head against the other vaccines that are that are approved, and and we'll see how our vaccine does comparatively, both in terms of safety and uh, immunogenicity. So those data should be out in the next month or two. Wow, we're going to be excitedly waiting for that as well. Talk to me about supply constraints, because I know as a manufacturer of these vaccines, and traditionally in the past, pre-pandemic, you'd hope to have a runway of several months of of supplies. What are you facing in terms of of supply constraints, and do you see that easing? I see it easing. As we've reported before, we've had supply constraints in, in, mm. in relatively um, straightforward areas like getting media that grow, you grow the cells, that grow our cells in, getting 2,000 liter bags uh, to put the uh, media in and filters and things like that. And so it's been an imbalance globally. Uh, and I think that the, the suppliers are, are well-known companies have been uh, trying to catch up and, and build capacity I think that's starting to ease. Uh, for instance, we had one of our largest plants uh, had, we had to put on hold for three or four weeks, which is a long time in a pandemic uh, because we didn't have media. But now we do. And our expectation is, is that the supply suppliers will catch up and get us to the point where we where we can have the luxury of having months worth of, uh, of inventory to uh, go into production. Yeah, funny when we're talking about this as a luxury. Um, Stan, I vividly remember speaking to you the last time when we were talking about what an incredible moment this was for 
for you, for your team, for years and years of, of research and preparation and work and to get to this point where you're on the cusp of having a vaccine that you can see out there and, and doing the work that it was meant to do is, is such a phenomenal moment. Financially, what does it mean for the company, Stan, in terms of break even, particularly if you're going to be providing these vaccines, as we discussed, to, to lower and middle income nations primarily, at, at least perhaps to begin with? Do you think about it in those terms or now that you've come to a point where you're almost at the point of saying, look, we've got a vaccine and we've we've got the technology and we've done it. That's enough for investors. I think that it's a balance. Uh, our, we, we will have the majority of our vaccines in the early in the early stages post approval will be in the low and middle income countries at low and middle income prices, which will be uh, pretty significantly different than in high incomes. But we'll have a mix. We have uh, advanced purchase orders from from countries like Canada and Australia, and, and we expect to have it in the EU. And so we'll have a mix of those. Uh, but but we won't. It won't be a profit maximization in the first couple quarters or maybe first year, but it'll be sufficient to keep us going. We need to we need to get to the break even and plus stage, and and we will. Uh, but we're going to build a company uh, based upon uh, being able to deliver our vaccine globally, and uh, and it's it's going to be uh, trans transition to a booster vaccine in high income countries, and and we need to finish the primary vaccine regimen in low and middle income countries. So we'll be okay. Yeah, let's do that first. Stan, fantastic to have you on the show. Once again, congratulations to you and the team and we let you get back to work. It's Thank Stan you. Oak there, president and CEO okay. of Novavax. Thank you. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are trading on the first trading day of the summer, the longest day of the year, too, for many of us. And it's a nice day for investors who are long also. U.S. stocks bouncing back after Friday's steep sell-off. Financials and energy stocks, so-called reflation trades, are back in the green today and helping momentum moving us along. Growth-oriented names held up the best on Friday, too. The Nasdaq, not too far away from fresh record highs, around 1.5%, I think pre-market trade. Bitcoin suffering an early summer shellacking. It's falling more than 8% to a fresh two-week low on new moves by China to regulate and curb the use of cryptocurrencies. China, China is urging domestic banks and fintech giant Alipay to stop offering crypto services to combat what it calls crypto, quote, speculation. All this amid reports that Bitcoin mines in southwest China were shut down over the weekend. Crypto watchers say they were taken aback by the severity of China's actions. All this weighing on shares of MicroStrategy today, the company that has sunk more than $2.7 billion of its balance sheet cash into Bitcoin. MicroStrategy announcing today that it bought an additional 13,000 Bitcoins recently. Let's move on. First Solar is creating the biggest plant for making solar panels outside of China. It's investing nearly $700 million to build the factory in Ohio. Unlike many other manufacturers, First Solar says it's not relying on the Chinese supply chain to do so. Joining us now is Mark Widmar. He's the CEO of First Solar. Mark, fantastic to have you on the show. Look, we can explain and talk about what this means for U.S. Uh, energy independence and security, but it's the technology for me that you provide that's so vitally important. Ramping up investment for you guys doesn't mean ramping up reliance on Chinese technology at the same time. Please explain why. 
Yeah, sure. When we, we started the company about um, 20 years ago, and we did it with the premise that we wanted to create the next generation technology, something that would be disruptive, something that would enable the journey that we were going to get ready to embark upon that was going to be many decades to come in order to achieve our long-term goals and overall climate goals that um, a lot of the countries had established at that point in time. So we created what's referred to as a thin film semiconductor, which is different than the crystal silicon semiconductor that the Chinese use. Um, we focused on innovation and um, we've been able to create a disruptive thin film technology that really is two sheets of glass and a semiconductor that's based on a couple different compounds, which are not at all dependent upon a, a Chinese supply chain dependency. And much of it's recyclable, too. It's not just about the lack of reliance on Chinese uh, crystalline silicon uh, semiconductors. It's recyclable. Just explain this part of the, the puzzle, too. Yeah, so we've founded the company as well on a premise of a circular economy. So the two primary materials that we use for our semiconductor, one is a byproduct of the mining of copper and the other is a byproduct of the mining of zinc. And then we have an approach of recovering the, the vast majority of our semiconductors. So we uh, started our recycling capa capabilities over a decade ago. Uh, when the product does reach its end of life, we recover over 90% of the materials that went into the product and we recover essentially 100% of the semiconductor uh, and then reuse it for new production. So what does this mean in terms of cost? to the consumer, relative cost in terms of the production of solar panels, but also relative to other forms of, of technology, less clean forms of technology, because that's what it comes down to. Yeah, so if you think about it um, early on, really people weren't procuring uh, solar uh, power from pure economics, right? It was uh, largely policy driven. Right. And where we've gone to now over a decade of disruption of not only improving the performance of the technology, but also reducing the cost of the product significantly. Uh, we're now the cheapest and lowest cost form of new generation in many markets, especially with a good solar resource. So you have an opportunity now that if, if you think about where we started with a vision of this industry was around uh, liberation that would say that any pretty much everywhere in the world, you have a good wind resource or solar resource. Uh, so the moment of liberation occurred when the technology became viable, and now you've gotten to an inflection point that is the cheapest cost form of new generation and many markets in which we compete in. You know, it's fascinating because we've gone through years of underinvestment relative to nations like China, for example, who heavily subsidized their industry. If I look at what happened during the Trump administration, we obviously saw the tariffs uh, applied on solar product imports. We also saw corporate tax cuts potentially both now could be altered and removed. Mark, what would that mean for the investment? Would you still make the investment that you're making for all the reasons you just described, or would that make life more difficult? It clearly can create some challenges. Um, yeah. And if we talk about tariffs, let's just talk about tariffs just for a moment. Um, to me, tariffs serve a purpose in the extent of, look, we all believe in free trade, right? That's not the issue we're talking about, but we also want to ensure fair trade. Uh, and to the extent there's not fair trade, and as you mentioned, where the Chinese have heavily subsidized strategic industries such as solar, uh, I do believe tariffs do play a role, and hopefully the new administration can see that as well. Um, as it relates to the corporate tax, um, when we made a decision a little over two plus years ago to expand our facility phase two expansion in, in Parisburg, part of it was because of the corporate tax rate, um, which obviously moved down meaningfully from 35% down to 21%. Uh, to the extent the corporate tax rate would um, 
increase, go back to 25, maybe 28%. It would have some inflection points and some headwinds towards the investment decisions that we've made. But where we are right now is we focused on how do we create the next gen technology for us. So the factory that we're going to be putting in, in uh, Toledo, Ohio area, uh, it will be more than doubling the capacity that we have there now. And it will also be the next gen product. So it will be uh, higher efficiency, higher performing, uh, it will be lower cost, and it will drive down uh, not only the cost of making a, the technology of the module, but also the power plant or the balance of system costs. Um, so we believe that we're in a position that we can sustain headwinds such as uh, removable tariffs, as well as an increase in corporate tax rate. Uh, but I do think it will impact, uh, impact our decision whether we want to expand beyond where we are right now. We've got six gigawatts of production here in the U.S., and we've also made an uh, announcement that we're looking to continue to expand beyond that with the right policy reforms uh, and support. So corporate tax rates as well as tariffs, industrial policy supports uh, will all be part of the you know, factors that we use to make an informed decision whether we continue to add capacity or not. Yeah, U.S. government, I hope you're listening. Very quickly, Mark, have you been uh, approached by any Bitcoin miners? <laughs> no, but, uh, yeah. you know, there is a, there is an opportunity there just because of the standpoint of um, it's no different than data centers and the like. We, of course. we provide a lot of solar power to uh, data centers. And um, as it relates to energy intensive um, processes such as Bitcoin mining, uh, there's an opportunity there to enable that technology with clean, for, clean affordable renewable energy such as solar power. Aha. Uh -huh. So the conversation is uh, certainly an open one. Mark Whitmer, great to have you with us and uh, congratulations on the investment. The CEO of First Solar. Thank you. All right. Up next, the pandemic has hardened attitudes towards refugees. But can the world fix the COVID crisis without abandoning the most vulnerable among us? That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. In 2020, most of the world was told to stay at home. But for 82 million refugees, that was simply not an option. The UN says there was a 4% rise in the number of people displaced last year. And yet the COVID crisis has hardened attitudes at the same time. 50% of people in a recent poll said their country should close the borders to refugees entirely. And almost 40% wanted their government to cut aid to refugees. Guadueni was a refugee. He came to America as one of hundreds of so-called lost boys of Sudan. Now he's an actor and a UN goodwill ambassador for East Africa and the Horn of Africa. He's working with Doug Heskey, CEO of Sustainable Investing New Day Impact, to turn the spotlight on the refugee crisis. And they both join us now. Gentlemen, fantastic to have you on the show and, and welcome. Gary, I want to start with you because your experience is not just one day, which was yesterday, where we have World Refugee Day. Yours was years of, of suffering and struggle, and you're a miracle story to be where you are today. But can you just explain to our audience so they understand what being a refugee is like? Well, first, I'd like to thanks uh, for taking time to come and speak with us about the refugees and internal Thank displaced you. persons. My life journey is always set on the backdrops of our uh, of extended civil war between the north and the south of Sudan. And this was in the 80s. So when I was first introduced to being a refugee, it happened in 1986-87 when I was a small boy. A life in a refugee camp is always rough because you get to get up in the morning and you know that you're not going to be doing anything as a child. There's no facilities for you to learn. And that in itself, it made people to be... Uh, 
it made people really struggle even to understand uh, who they are and what they wanted to do because there's no hope. Uh, when I was living in the refugee camps, we didn't have there's so much poverty all around you, and then the food that people eat is not even enough. They leave alone that um, uh, you can thrive in that in that kind of situation. And these are my experiences, and I always just wanted to share them with people because when you become a refugee, there's a strength that you have, and then I think that strength can can be something that really helps other people to understand uh, how we can learn to stand and be strong. Yeah, I mean, your story is incredible. You were recruited as a child soldier. You eventually escaped as a teenager to Ethiopia. Um, you were in a refugee camp in Kenya when you finally came to the United States. And I know you got a college degree in the United States. I can only imagine the kind of strength that requires. You are incredible. Um, Doug, this is a growing problem. It, it's not reducing. And as I mentioned in the introduction, actually, people's attitudes towards refugees are, are hardening. Just explain what you do at New Day Impact to try and tackle these things and, and how you're working with Ger. Yes, so I think, Julia, that's incredibly well said, that this is a problem of epic proportion today. 80 million people, roughly the size of Germany, that have been displaced. And I think it's also important that when we talk about the refugee crisis, not to just characterize people as displaced people, because it almost removes, removes the human element from all of this. These are people that are suffering, that are being forced their homelands with their families because they are victims of violence. They don't have access to clean water and adequate food. And when we think about the future of humanity, we can't have a healthy planet unless we talk about having a healthy humanity. And so there are potentially a billion young people, a billion infants that could be born into a malnourished environment because of, because of global warming. 750 million people, it's estimated by 2100, that may have to migrate to other, uh, other areas. So integration is a really big piece of this. And we as an organization at New Day Impact, we define ourselves as a collective action pro um, program. So what we're trying to do is to get people to think differently about how to solve all of these world issues, whether it be climate change, whether it be clean water or an ocean health, and most importantly, refugees right now, especially as we give additional consideration to this around uh, World Refugee Day. Um, this is um, something that everybody needs to engage in right now. There's some amazing work that's being done by corporate organizations today that are coming in behind to support refugees all around the world, whether it be organizations like Ben & Jerry's at Unilever, yeah. or whether it be organizations like Microsoft. Um, Ger, come in here too, because I mentioned some of the challenges that you've been through, but also great success. And that culminated in 2015, becoming a UN goodwill ambassador. And I know the UN has been pivotal to the path that you've taken as well. Just talk about some of the programs and the impact that they're having on the ground, because it ties to the sort of investment opportunities and the change that, that corporations and, and governments are trying to make here. Ger, talk about the UN programs. Well, you know, success is to me means, you know, when you start to solve problems. So in 2014, when my country really uh, was plunged into civil war, I didn't know what to do. And because we were new nations and uh, we just try to figure out how to become a nation in our own. 
And that in itself, living in the United States, it was hunting me down to see my people being displaced all over East Africa. It just kind of took me back with time, like 1980 and 90s, when a lot of civil war was really happening here in East and Horn of Africa, where I'm from. And that's the reason that I really um, decided to, 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 to partner up with the UNHCR so that we can, because we have the same view, so we can actually try to, I can share my life story so that some of the refugees can really uh, get help from them. And then the, some of the program that we did is something that I always focus on is always uh, educational opportunity for young people. Because my entire journey is always attached to, to, uh, to learning. And that's my motto. So we, there's some of the school that really exists in refugee camps in Kakuma and, and also even another one in, in Nairobi, Kenya. So what I did is I released the movie uh, called The Good Life with Reese Weatherspoon, and then I went to Japan, and then I, we raised money for, for those students to be, for the ceiling of their classroom to be raised a little bit, because it's only like a, a primary schools, and then some of those guys, they, they can't learn anymore, so they need those schools to be up to 12th grade. And these yeah. are the things that I have participated with, with the help of the UNHCR for the past for, for four or five years, and it's a role that I was like to play because my entire life is always attached to being a former refugees. Yeah, I mean, you've moved on, but you'll never forget your past and how they continue to need help and we need to do more. Doug, very quickly, I have about a minute. For people who invest, for people who have pension funds, for example, they need to be asking questions about to what extent they're getting a return, but also that return is giving back to society in some way. And you've mentioned it very quickly. What do investors need to be aware of? What should they be looking for in terms of sustainability? So investors should be looking at um, organizational behavior supporting refugees. What are they actually doing, not just in terms of writing policy, but demonstrating that they're dis uh, supporting um, displaced individuals? And so we actually run um, a diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, program and investment portfolio that supports organizations like this. But most importantly, people need to get informed on the issue. There are lots of great resources out there online, whether it be through the Tent Partnership, whether it be through the UNHCR, or you can go to New Day's own website for more information. They need to get involved. So use your voice to activate, encourage organizations to become more supportive. And then finally, invest behind these organizations that are making these really powerful changes in supporting the crisis. Yeah, and understand that for most people, this isn't a choice. Guys, thank you so much. Doug Heskey, the CEO of New Day Impact. And uh, come back and talk to us soon, please. Your story is inspirational and we didn't get enough time to talk about it. But for, for everyone watching, well done. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you have sheer strength, my friend. Gerdwaini, UN Goodwill Ambassador there, and Doug Heskey. Guys, thanks once again. Okay, we're back after this. American Airlines is cutting hundreds of flights. The company says it's had to adjust what it calls a, quote, fraction of its schedule as it struggles to keep up with soaring demand. Our aviation correspondent, Pete Montine, joins us now. Pete, this is the opposite of what should be happening as people get vaccinated, travel ramps up, holiday season starts. What's going on? 
it's so true, Julia, and passengers are really going to be caught by surprise by this because airlines have been caught by surprise by just the crush of people coming back to travel in a big way. Let me just put this into context for you. The TSA screened 2.1 million people at airports across the country on Sunday. That is the biggest number we have seen since March 7th of 2020, the fifth time we have seen a number higher than 2 million in this month alone. And that's so significant because that number is about three quarters of what we saw back in 2019 pre-pandemic. And now American Airlines says it's struggling to keep up. It's had maintenance issues, staffing issues. The weather has been bad in June. So it had to cancel about 6% of its flights on Sunday, 181 flights in total. Now it says it's going to take a targeted approach to these cancellations, canceling about 1% of all flights through mid-July. That's about 50 to 80 flights each day. It says it has to do this just to keep up with getting people back on the job. Remember that airlines got a lot smaller because of the pandemic, and now they're facing a bit of growing pains here. Yeah, I mean, they warned about this. All the industry bodies warned about this. What are they doing for passengers whose flight gets cancelled? Well, passengers are either getting booked on earlier flights or later flights. And American Airlines says the biggest impact will be in those major hubs like DFW because there are more options for passengers there. But remember, if the airline books you on a flight either four hours before or after your scheduled flight, four hours difference, then you are entitled to a full refund here. Wow. Okay. well, that's something. Pete Montine, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Now, a rare case of China's fiery national liquor has sold for nearly $1.4 million in London. Auction house Sotheby's says that's the highest price ever paid for a single lot of Mao Tai outside China and more than five times what it was what it was expected. What was expected? It included 24 bottles sold under the Sunflower brand from 1974. Fiery is one word for it. I'd call it explosive, but I do actually like it. Now, that's it for the show. It wasn't me, though, that bought it, by the way. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. It's great to be back. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. And I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.